Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Garland Nixon here. And uh, let's, you know, I believe it or not, I took a few notes and uh, we're going to have a little bit of a little bit of a talk about um, what I think that has been exposed by the Biden administration and his flock of morons. Let's talk. You know, um, let's start here because I've I've referred to Biden and his team as a flock of morons. And let me kind of define that really quick. I think, in fact, it's important to define that, define what I'm talking about right now. All right. Um, When we talk about intellect, when we talk about somebody's an idiot, a genius, a fool, a moron, we use words like that. What are we referring to? You know, why do I say that? When I talk about the Biden administration and I call them idiots and fools and morons and derogative, uh, pejorative terms like that, I don't mean their processing power. The Jake Sullivan, Blinken, these guys are known to have been book smart, as you know, the old folks would say. They were, you know, book smart, right? Is the same thing to say about the Biden administration. And I think at the heart of it is something called motivated reasoning, right? I want something to be true. So I just reason my way there. I want to date a supermodel, right? Some, a guy sees uh, some, one of these Instagram girls, right? And he's got, she's got all of the fake everythings and she's, you know, the, everything's fake. And and on Instagram, she's got the filters, she's got everything. So she looks inhuman. She looks so beautiful. And this guy says, man, I'd like to date an Instagram model. And then he starts coming up a a, a reason in his mind why she should date him. And she probably will and blah, blah, blah. And he's messaging her and she's messaging back saying, send money. And he can't figure it. He just knows. And he has convinced himself that this Instagram model is going to date him. And he's sending her money. Right. Why? Motivated reasoning. He wants to believe that. Now, if he looks at himself in the mirror, he's a schlump, disheveled, broke, living in his mom's basement, you know, uh, he's a hoarder, his computer doesn't work half of the time, his life's an absolute friggin' disaster. But he wants to date her, and he convinces himself that she will date him. A lot of people take advantage of that motivated reasoning. To me, when I see motivated reasoning, that's how I get from a person such as a Jake Sullivan, who is known to be, quote, book smart, to calling Jake Sullivan an idiot because that book smart ain't going to get you where you need to be. You need to, as as we would say in Zen, you need to unlearn, right? You need to be able to look objectively at things. And what do we know about the Biden administration? They can't look objectively at anything. We now have people in the Biden administration as the their constituents say, hey, we're feeling the pain of the economy. The Biden administration says, what's wrong with you? The economy is doing great. Why? Because if the economy were doing great, it would be excellent for Joe Biden's reelection prospects. So they just say it is. Why? Because it should be. It's got to be. They want it to be. So what do they do then? They go to their eggheads and they say, give me some data that says the economy is doing good. They don't say evaluate the the economy. Give me some data. In fact, okay, here's the thing about it. Now, these people, because they're idiots, it's not that they can't figure that out. It's that it wouldn't work if it were true. Simple as that. It's not that they're not smart enough to figure it out. It's that if this were true, it wouldn't work for them. So they say, let's come up with a plan that works for us, right? So the bottom line is, if you read this piece of crap, it shows that they're idiots. These think tanks are all putting things together. They're putting these people together. Rand's putting things together. And they're saying, how do we want this to end? So what's going on here? What's happening here? The Biden administration, they're revealing and exposing the empire the U.S. empire, for what it is right now. You can make arguments that it was something different in the past, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, but what is it right now? It's the equivalent. In in, in some ways, you can make a lot of arguments 
that the U.S. is the equivalent of the Fourth Reich, that as did um, 1930s and 40s Germany, it's extremely, it's militarily powerful, it's militarily oriented, but when it comes to reasoning out its foreign policy, the leaders are extremely stupid. One of the things that, you know, if if you ever study um, psychology, right? One of the things that's discussed if you're, if if a psychologist is, 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 uh, uh, you know, starting off with a new patient, what is this person's inner voice? What is their inner conversation? How healthy is their inner conversation? And you know what I mean, the voice that you talk to yourself all the time. And some of us, like me, I talk to myself out, outwardly. I walk around and I'm having a conversation with myself, right? I should say this. I'm practicing saying things that I'm going to say at a time and all that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But the question is, how healthy is your inner conversation? You know, something happens. Are you saying to yourself, is your is your inner voice saying, I sure am stupid. Why did I do that? I'm an idiot. I hate myself. Is your inner conversation saying, I'm the man. I'm the most powerful, smartest, coolest guy on earth. I am, you know, you're some kind of a narcissist who just like constantly builds yourself up. I am privileged. I should have privileges above everybody because I'm better than everybody, right? How healthy is that inner voice? And everybody here knows what I'm talking about. Most of our inner voices have some combination of health and, you know, and disorientation at times. We don't know what to think and what to say to ourselves, right? And if you look at the U.S. empire, you ask yourself, how mentally healthy is it? What's the inner voice look, look sound like, right? The, another part of this is, as I talked about the guy in the beginning who wants to date the Instagram model, right? How healthy is his inner voice? Is he realistically evaluating his chances? Hmm. She's an Instagram model. She wants some billionaire or millionaire with a Maserati. I'm broke. I don't have a dime. If I put those two things together, I probably don't have much of a chance, right? The guy that does that is, has, is healthy. He sees the Instagram model. He recognized that he'd like to date the Instagram model, but he reasons things out and says, nah, she's out for money and I ain't got it. So my odds ain't real good. I can hope and I can send her a picture and say, here's me. I'm a little overweight. Okay, maybe I'm 150 pounds overweight. Probably haven't had a haircut in four years, so I look a little rough around the edges. So, and I'm a hoarder, and I live in my grandmother in my mother's basement, and she's about to throw me out for being a hoarder. Then I mention my addictions, right? So the guy does all of this, sends her the letter, and hopes, hey, maybe she'll say yes. But maybe he's at least reasonable enough to understand that the odds ain't good. He can reason himself into saying, "I got nothing to, I got nothing to lose. I'll give it a shot." But he can also reason himself into, "But I ain't got much of a shot," right? His inner voice may be healthy, even though the rest of them ain't. So my point is this. What we're talking about when we look at this Rand Corporation thingy is the inner voice of the U.S. empire, right? And if you look, listen to the Biden administration, you look at the kind of things they're saying. Listen to Tony Blinken. You talk about a an unhealthy inner voice. Everything can be going on in one direction. And Tony Blinken, right now, Blinken literally said recently, Yes, the world is looking for our leadership on the Gaza is, is, is issue, right? That's a real unhealthy uh, inner voice. You can interpret that two ways. Number one, that Tony Blinken's really stupid as hell, and he doesn't know that the world is pissed at us. He can't, like, he's not noticing what's going on at the United Nations and um, the, 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 the votes, and uh, he hasn't noticed millions of people in the streets around the world saying, screw the United States, they're baby killers, right? That's one possibility, but I don't think it's valid. He's not deaf, dumb, and blind. He has access to information and details. The other part of it is this, motivated reasoning. And that is, Tony Blinken doesn't care if it's true or false. He doesn't say things because they're true or false. He just says things because if they were true, it would be great for the Biden administration. So that's what we look. That's one of the things that's exposed now. And that is that Blinken and his group whether it's, hey, the economy's doing great. And people are like, yeah, but I can't afford chicken wings. I want to watch the game. I want to have my friends over. And we want to have chicken wings. But I can't afford chicken wings because they cost too much, right? We'll have some lettuce and one tomato to divide between 12 people. And we'll call that a salad. Can't really afford any uh, dressing. So how about we go with some uh, little bit of uh, 
oil and vinegar. And then the interpretation of Lincoln is the economy's doing great. What's wrong with you? Don't you know how great the economy's doing? Right. Oh, we're winning. Uh, Russia's uh, ter doing terrible. They're losing. Um, everybody, the world is wants to um, our leadership on Gaza. Why is that? Because Tony Blinken and the Biden administration have revealed something about empire, period. But in this particular uh, uh, um, case, the U.S. empire, the U.S. empire doesn't say things because they're true. They say things because if they were true, it would be great for their position. It would be, it would benefit them. It would make us look good. It would, whatever we need. So the, the Biden administration, Blinken, don't get stressed out or angry at Joe Biden or these people because they say things and you shake your head like, where, what the hell planet are they living on? It's not that they're living on a different planet. It's not that they don't, they, they don't understand what's going on. They don't have the data or information. So what did he say? I don't care if it's true or not. I need you to say this. It's an absolute lie. Who cares? That was the, that, and that's what Tony Blinken's doing. That's what they do. That's what Biden does. That's what they did before uh, Biden was in. That's what the empire does after Biden's in. It's particularly a collapsing empire it has to do it even more. A weakening empire has to do it even more because things are going bad, and you always have to pretend that things are going well. And in order to pretend that things are going well, you have to say that things are going well, even when they ain't. And that's where we are now. And coming up next on Arts Express. This is The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which I wrote in 18... 76, or was published in 1876. Tom joined the new order of cadets of temperance, being attracted by the showy character of their regalia. He promised to abstain from smoking, chewing, and profanity as long as he remained a member. Now he found out a new thing, namely that to promise not to do a thing is the surest way in the world to make a body want to go and do that very thing. Tom soon found himself tormented with a desire to drink and swear. The desire grew to be so intense that nothing but the hope of a chance to display himself in his red sash kept him from withdrawing from the order. Fourth of July was coming, but he soon gave that up. Gave it up before he had worn his shackles over 48 hours and fixed his hopes upon old Judge Fraser, Justice of the Peace, who was apparently on his deathbed and would have a big public funeral since he was so high an official. During three days, Tom was deeply concerned about the judge's condition and hungry for news of it. Sometimes his hopes ran high, so high that he would venture to get out his regalia and practice before the looking glass. But the judge had a most discouraging way of fluctuating. At last, he was pronounced upon the mend and then convalescent. Tom was disgusted and felt a sense of injury, too. He handed in his resignation at once. And that night, the judge suffered a relapse and died. Tom resolved that he would never trust a man like that again. The funeral was a fine thing. The cadets paraded in a style calculated to kill the late member with envy. And no, that may not have been Mark Twain turning up on the show from the 19th century, but for certain, Sawyer Spielberg was indeed named after Tom Sawyer by his father, Steven Spielberg. And Sawyer will tell us why in our conversation coming up. He also has quite a lot to say about growing up in that famous film world and many productions of his own, including no less than two Christmas movies, one of them Merry Good Enough, just recently opening, and as no less than two protesters in the upcoming 9-11 thriller Martyr of Gowanus, along with being directed by his father in the Washington Post Watergate drama The Post. Here's Sawyer Spielberg. Well, hello, Sawyer, and welcome to our show. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Okay. And at the risk of asking a strange question, were you by any chance named after Tom Sawyer? I, I am named after Tom oh, Sawyer. Oh, so it's not a strange question. <laughs> no, it's not a strange question at all. Um, you can say my parents were Mark Twain fans growing up. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was named after Tom Sawyer. Ah. And are you a Tom Sawyer fan as well now that you've been named after him? <laughs> I I am, I am. I feel like my personality though is uh, it's a good it's a good combination of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. You know, it's uh um but I yeah, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of his work and I'm a fan of those those earlier stories and yeah. Okay. Now, what was it about the film and the story that inspired you to be part of Mary Good Enough? It was the first time that I read a holiday movie that wasn't that had no, um, no none of those uh, um, cliches. It was really well written, and it was all about uh, a family that was dysfunctional and imperfect, but at the same time beautiful because they were all trying to connect. And I just love the writing. I, I've worked with Caroline and Dan before on a previous project. And so when I sat down and read Mary Goodenough, I was like, here's a worth, here's a story worth all the efforts it takes to put one of these things up and together. And so I, I, I was more than honored to be a part of it. It was, um, it, it, it had me laughing, but also it had me um, crying at times when I read it because, ah. you know, the holidays can be, can be a, a really exciting time, but they can also be a really tough time. Um, and uh, I think this film does a really good job at tapping into both, both of those those themes for the holidays. You know, there's there's a strong there's a strong theme of like coming home as an adult to spend Christmas with your parents back in your hometown. You know, it's yeah, it, it I I just I just love that idea. And what is your take about what this film is saying about the mix of the holiday season with a dysfunctional family on the edge? I think it's extremely relatable. I think that uh, there's a lot of people out there who um, who come from a, a very colorful and interesting family. And I think that when we've been touring this film since October, starting off in New Hampshire, we've, we've had a lot of people come up to us at the end of the screening and say, um, uh, I can't believe you wrote my family into your movie. Mm. And so I, I um, it's the first time that I've seen and read a script that really taps into the truth about a lot of, uh, a lot of families and in America and, you know, throughout the, you know, just throughout the world maybe, but there's, you know, family dynamics are a big part of the story. And uh, I, I think it brings out a lot of humor and by the end of the film, I think everyone has a moment of acceptance and a moment of uh, of truth. And um, and I think that, you know, everyone leaves the film feeling feeling good inside or good enough inside. And how did you go about pretending your wife, Ray, was not your wife in the movie, but rather someone you're pursuing romantically? You know, the, the that's a great question. And I... You know, Ray is such a terrific actor, and when she was cast in Mary Goodenough as the lead, Lucy, um, I was just so I was I was so ecstatic. I was just so happy, and I was so um, so excited to see what she brings. And she brings such depth and a river of emotions to her part that when I was on set with her, she 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 was just amazing me every day. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was so the, the the excitement and the, the freshness and the newness of being amazed by her performance, working with her on screen, I think brought um, a, a freshness and a newness to Sam and Lucy's relationship in the story. Um, it all worked out. And then a, a little funny side note is some of the shots we, sh we, we worked together on, it was so cold in Massachusetts. I think it must have been like 20 degrees at mm. night. And it was shooting this film in mid-December. And uh, in particular, there's a car hood scene where we, we, where we, you know, we, we have a moment together for the first time. And uh, I think the cold weather really, um, uh, really kind of spiked the nerves of the scene. And so when it came out, it looked like we were, you know, 
uh, together for the first time, just based off on the fact that we were both trying to desperately trying to keep each other warm. Mm. So it, it all worked out in the end. And I, I really trust um, Dan Kennedy and his work as a DP and director and Caroline. And, and I really feel safe with them. So we were, we were really able to explore and, and, and reclaim the newness of our relationship on camera. Mm. And this is the first time that we were on screen together. Ah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was pretty special too. Now, this is not your first film about the holidays and dysfunctional families. You're also in the upcoming Christmas Eve in Miller's Point. Would you say that's by design or coincidence? It's, it's, it's not by design or coincidence. The, the producer of <laughs> Mary Good Enough also went and produced, her name is Krista Minto. She, she produced uh, Miller's Point. And she, she called me in to audition for Miller's Point. Uh, for a character named Splint. And it's a coming-of-age story. It's about a bunch of kids who are um, rebelling against their family during the holidays. I played a character that represented in the story of, of, of how far in the other direction away from family you can go. So I was sort of the... Uh, um, so it's a very different character than who I played Sam and Mary Goodenough. So it was it, I, it was exciting for me to branch off and do something completely different. And what would you say are the positives and negatives of having a prominent father in the film world in terms of his tremendous creative influence on you and also expectations and those challenges placed on you to live up to? The, the great thing about growing up the way that I did is that I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, in the world of film, and I got very comfortable, and I got very knowledgeable, and I got very uh, uh, interested in, uh, in film. And so because I spent so much time on sets growing up, when I walk onto a movie set, I'm very comfortable. And I feel like as an actor, you have to feel safe and comfortable in order for you to really deliver a good performance. So that was a huge benefit, and uh, you know, my dad from a very early, from a very early on in my life, he instilled in me a deep love and appreciation for film. And so I, I, I'm pretty in tune with when a when a good script comes my way. If I read it, I'm like, oh, this is this is this is really this is worth worth it to jump <laughs> into. Yeah, um, I don't. I try not to think about and to. Answer the last of your question. I try not to think about any expectation or or outside, you know, opinions that are thrown on me. Um, I try to just focus on the job. And uh, when I read a script, I'll see a character and I'll say, "Oh, I, mean, I could probably bring something unique to him." And then I go and I just focus on that on that job. Mm. Yeah. And any plans you and your father might have about making movies together one day? No, no plans yet. <laughs> Uh, but I'll tell you what, my, you know, my dad's got pretty amazing taste in films. And, uh, you know, if he offers me a, a part in one of his movies, I, uh, I'd have a pretty hard time saying no. And what can you say about your upcoming film, Martyr of Gowanus? And why were you drawn to be part of a film about 9-11? It was... I thought it was a really interesting story because it's not it's not necessarily a 9/11 story. It's it's mostly about this this guy from Long Island um and and who lives in Brooklyn who is sort of stuck in his ways. He's struggling with his work and relationships and he just feels like an outsider. And the the attacks happen uh 9/11 and it uh it sort of spins him out of control and down a dark road and he ends up having to redeem himself by rescuing his uh his love interest's little brother from gang violence in New York. Um and I think it's if you zoom out a little bit, uh it's a story about how how the attacks on 9-11 affected the average New Yorker. And it's written really well by uh Brian Muir, who's got a wealth of history knowledge and uh it's shot really beautifully by the Dwyer brothers from North Carolina, Joey and Tim, uh, and the cast is phenomenal. I would come home from set and, and tell my wife Ray, mm -hmm. uh, I'd be, I'd say, "Oh, these actors are incredible. I'm working with like some of the 
some of the most outstanding actors I've ever met in my life here in New York. And I've always wanted to shoot in New York City too, so that was a that was an interesting pull for me. Mm. Um and uh and yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm excited to see the first uh the first uh cut of it. Hopefully sometime in the new year. And are you the main character? Exactly. That's me. I'm Gavin. Yeah. Now, you've been directed by your father, Steven Spielberg, playing a protester in The Post. So how would you compare and contrast being directed by him, protesting him in a movie, to, say, taking orders from him at home as your father? <laughs> I, uh, um, I think... I think that on set, you know, we're, we're, no matter if he's my dad or not, I think we're all there to to honor the story and and do the job. And so it's 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 very professional. And um, and I I also feel like going back to Dan and Caroline, uh, your director of whatever movie you're in is kind of becomes your your parent in a way. Mm. You know, kind of becomes the captain of the ship. So. So, so in a way, Dan and Caroline were were my parents for a few weeks while we were shooting that that mm. that film, and um, and uh, at home, my uh, my dad is just dead. He's not a director, so he he puts his he leaves his cap, you know, his, that iconic baseball cap. He leaves it he leaves it on the uh, you know on the door when he walks <laughs> in, and he he puts on a new cap, and that cap is is of a dad and also now a grandfather to our children. <laughs> and any last word about Mary Good Enough? Well, it comes out digitally everywhere on Apple and Amazon and all the, all the digital platforms. And uh, I really think this is a very special movie, and I'm very proud of everyone involved, and I, uh, I'm excited to share it with, um, with America. I think mm. it's going to be, I think it's going to make some waves. Okay, thank you so much, Sawyer Spielberg, for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. It's great to uh, great to speak to you this morning. Have uh, a nice day. You too. Bye. Bye. And next on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. As I opened my email inbox today, I got an email from an outfit called Pizza IDF, which asks me to donate money to buy pizzas for active duty Israeli Defense Force soldiers. I discover I can buy pizzas for an entire company of Israeli soldiers or freshly made sandwiches for a platoon. I sort of want to throw up when I think that the Israelis have blocked food from coming across the Gaza border in order to deliberately starve Palestinian men, women, and children. But Pizza IDF has the gall to ask me to send pizzas to Israeli soldiers so that they can have something to snack on in between killing Gazans. There's really no hiding from this genocide. But that's actually not what I was planning on talking about, though there are connections. I wanted to talk about state censorship of writers and what is going on particularly in Florida in Orange County, where the deranged legislators have instituted a campaign of censorship of school libraries, making teachers personally liable for heavy penalties for having banned material on their classroom shelves. Now, I'm going to name some of the titles of the 673 books that teachers have removed from their shelves in order to keep themselves free from prosecution. But first, I want to make a few points that we should keep in mind about how governments institute regimes of policing actions and thought. It's always easier for a government to get its populace to police itself than to have to constantly do the dirty work themselves. We certainly see this with Israeli policy towards Palestinians. By pretending that the Palestinian Authority is the real law enforcement authority in the West Bank, the Israelis get the Palestinian Authority to do their dirty work for them when it comes to everyday crimes. It's so much more efficient. And so it is, too, with policing thought crimes. Censorship is at its most effective when the censorship is self-censorship, when a populace is so cowed that they think the restriction of thought and words is their own doing. 
How does the government get the populace to shut up when it also feeds the people the illusion that they're living in a democratic society? How can they try and reconcile censorship with the supposedly democratic state? Well, they appeal to values that it would be hard for most right-thinking people to disagree with. For the Israelis, it's anti-Semitism, charged the government with accusations of genocide as the South African government has just done, and the cries of anti-Semitism go up. It's the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card. What the legislators in Florida are doing is to try to appeal to people's desire to protect children from all kinds of impure thoughts and institute so-called protections for the children. It's always for the children. But just passing laws is not enough to get the kind of compliance and control these legislators are seeking. And that is why these laws are purposely written so vaguely and with such stiff penalties that teachers, textbook writers, and principals are always unsure whether they've crossed the line or not. And that's because the line is never clearly defined. In this way, people start to self-censor more than any law could dictate by itself. And to illustrate how that works, here are just some of the 673 books that teachers in Orlando, Florida have pulled off their shelves in order to not run afoul of the nebulous thought control laws. Now, some of these books I not only remember reading as a public high school student in New York City over 40 years ago, but was actually required to read them by my teachers. Yeah, so we've gone really backwards in 40 years. Nevertheless, the teachers in Orange County felt they had to remove these books. Here's a list of some of them. Four Plays by Aristophanes, The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood, The Clan of the Cave Bear, Jean Owl, Herzog, Saul Bellow, Forever, Judy Bloom, The Mists of Avalon, Marion Zimmer Bradley, The Absolute True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, Sherman Alexi, The House of the Spirits, Isabel Allende, Kindred, Octavia Butler, The Big Sleep, Raymond Chandler, Disgrace, J.M. Kotze, The Lords of Discipline, Pat Conroy, Scarpetta, Patricia Cornwall, Blade Runner, Philip K. Dick, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison, also removed from the school shelves, The Roundhouse, Louise Erdrich, Like Water for Chocolate, Laura Esquivel, The Horse Whisperer, Nicholas Evans, Madame Bovary, Gustave Flaubert, the House of Bernada Alba, Federico Garcia Lorca. Howl and Other Poems, Allen Ginsberg. Bee Season, Myla Goldberg. The Quiet American, Graham Greene. The Firm, John Grisham. Water for Elephants, Sarah Gruen. The Freedom Writer's Diary, Erin Gruwell. Jude the Obscure, Thomas Hardy. Catch-22, Joseph Heller. Also removed from the shelves of the schools, Damien, Herman Hesse, Siddhartha, Herman Hesse, The Kite Runner, Khalid Hosseini, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley, The World According to Garp, John Irving, On the Road, Jack Kerouac, Born on the Fourth of July, Ron Kovic, I Know This Much Is True, Wally Lamb, The Grass Is Singing, Doris Lesson, the Born Identity, Robert Ludlum. The Natural, Bernard Malamud. Nectar in a Sieve, Kamala Markandaya. The Good Lord Bird, James McBride. Lonesome Dove, Larry McMurtry. Also removed from the Orlando bookshelves, Paradise Lost, John Milton. Watchmen, Alan Moore. Beloved, Toni Morrison. Metamorphoses, Ovid. Learning Tree, Gordon Parks, La Belle Sauvage, Philip Pullman, The Family, Mario Puzo, The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand, The Casual Vacancy, J.K. Rowling. Also removed from the Orlando school bookshelves, The God of Small Things, Arundhati Roy, Push by Sapphire, The Reader, Bernard Schlink, Equus, Peter Schaffer, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Betty Smith, East of Eden, John Steinbeck, Sophie's Choice, William Styron, The Bridges of Madison County, Robert James Walker, and Native Son, Richard Wright. The list goes on and on and on. 
Yeah, you've been listening to a roll call of books taken off the shelves by the teachers of the Orange County, Florida School District, teachers who were intimidated by the latest censorship laws. Now, these laws, like the anti-BDS laws in New York State and 36 other states, which bar the state from investing in companies that boycott Israel, must be resisted. It is happening here. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And coming up now on the show. They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done Brother, can you spare a dime? Down and Out in Manchester and Salford Written and narrated by Brett Gregory Part 2 I was shaking No, wait, someone was shaking me I opened my eyes and saw it was sunny. I was still sitting in the armchair. I had my hands lying on my belly like a grumpy old man, and they were freezing. Sunny told me I'd been asleep for 93 minutes and had missed two episodes of Loki. I asked him what time it was, and he said it was a quarter past ten. And where's your dad? He's asleep in his bedroom. I listened and could hear him snoring. Sunny then told me that he was now off to bed himself and asked if I wanted the television left on. No, it's okay. He switched it off, paused in the doorway, turned around and wished me good night. I couldn't remember the last time someone had wished me good night. I smiled. Night night, Sonny. After about five minutes, with only a small table lamp illuminating the David Hockney print on the wall, the room assumed an eerie ambience. I surveyed the shadows surrounding me to remind myself where I was and the situation I was in. For Dad was only next door, however. It wasn't like I was absolutely alone in the whole wide world, now was it? I thought about trying to get back to sleep. After Nick had died in November 2013, I began having a recurring nightmare where my mobile phone had been stolen and I had to search for it in places from my past while being obstructed by people who I once knew. Then, in July 2015, following my redundancy, I began having an alternate nightmare where I'd misplaced my wallet and, once again, I had to search for it in exactly the same manner, revisiting the same old places, the same old people. With Robbo's death from Covid in March 2020, however, these two recurring nightmares conjoined, collaborated, and succeeded in making my sleeping life a monotonous misery, bereft of communication and value. Thus, for the last three and a half years, my soul had been exhausted on an almost daily basis. Like a self-conscious automaton, I then reached down into the plastic carrier bag at my feet to feel for my wallet, and in my pocket checked that my phone was still there. I now needed the toilet, so I heaved myself up from the armchair as quietly as I could in the half-light and, without my crutches, shuffled across the carpet towards the bathroom like Boris Karloff in The Mummy. When I returned to the living room, I noticed the camp bed was folded up beside the sofa and quickly decided against trying and failing to put it together. I would have had to move the coffee table to create the space and the bed's metal frame would have clunked and clanked and woken everybody up. So I slumped back into the armchair, took my glasses off, placed them on the coffee table beside the phallic cactus, and closed my eyes. At around seven o'clock in the morning, it was like I hadn't slept a wink, as I spied Marcus 
hung over his boxer shorts and t-shirt, stumble into the living room, rubbing his eyes. He looked over at me and squinted as he then made his way around into the kitchenette. It appeared he had no idea who I was, so, in a panic, I reminded him. Morning, Marcus. He ran his chubby hand through his dishevelled mohawk and muttered that he didn't usually drink as much as he had last night. He then switched the kettle on and began rifling through his cupboards for a clean cup. I smiled awkwardly, looked down at my phone in my hand and began scrolling through the BBC News website. Hamas militants had killed 1,400 people at a music festival and, in response, Israel had, for the first time in 50 years, declared war. Meanwhile, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia had now entered its 592nd day. Marcus was now standing with a steaming cup of tea in his hand. He hadn't offered to make me a cup of tea, however, so I had a good idea what was about to come. He cleared his throat and told me that I could stay tonight as well if I had to, but that was it. His dad was coming over tomorrow and he had tumours. He was paranoid and he wouldn't like the look of me at all. I said, no worries man, not a problem. I took a deep breath, felt the fluid from my vape gurgle in my lungs and coughed. Also, Marcus continued, I have to go to work at 8.30 and I won't be back till 5. I'm not being funny, but you can't stay here all on your own. I don't really know you and I don't want to be worrying all day about what you're getting up to. Great, now he thinks I'm a thief. Fair enough, I said, and asked him what he did for a living. He told me he ran a removal business. He cleared people's homes of sofas and secrets and offices of computers and crimes. Sonny then appeared as if by magic, dressed in a blue school uniform. It was twenty past eight already. The last hour had simply vanished. Marcus passed his son his Pokemon rucksack and checked him over to make sure he was prepared for the day ahead. Sonny, listen to me. Concentrate in every lesson, even if you don't like the teacher. Yes, Dad. And your mum will be picking you up today. Don't forget. Sonny took a deep breath, turned and waved goodbye. I waved back and watched him open the front door and step out into the world. I hated school when I was his age. I just played in a nearby forest with the dog, chasing rabbits. Marcus was now in the bathroom. I heard him clear his throat with a growl and spit into the toilet bowl in disgust. He then brushed his teeth. After he returned, I told him I'd have to travel back to Manchester later today to inform the job centre of my change in circumstances and to see if they could help me find emergency accommodation. I'm hoping the dad will be able to give me a lift. What's the latest I should get back here? About eight o'clock, Marcus replied. Any later than that, and you'll have to find somewhere else. Sonny's got school in the morning. Eight o'clock. Okay. No worries, man. Outside, the morning presented itself as a chilly mist. As I made my way through it with my crutches, across the lawn, sparkling with dew, to the green plastic garden set outside for Dad's apartment, I could see the silhouettes of parents across the road, hurrying with their children by their side, also on their way to school. I then looked over my shoulder and watched Marcus climb into his removal van and drive away. Marvellous Marcus was written across the side of the vehicle in a red and orange font which you'd usually associate with a funfair. I squeezed into the same plastic chair as yesterday, but now it was damp with dew. I then chose to just sit there and vape as I awaited for Dad's return from the school run the clouds drifting over the angles of the rooftops until exactly nine o'clock when my phone started suddenly ringing. I pulled it out of my pocket and saw that it was a Manchester number. Is that Brett Gregory? Yes. Hi, my name's Sarah and I'm with the Adult Referral Service at Manchester City Council. Okay. Your details have been passed on to us. We deal with vulnerable adults who have mental health issues. How are you right now? How are you feeling? I've lost the roof over my head, not my mind. I'm homeless. Oh, I see. There must have been a mix-up somewhere. Well, 
if you're homeless right now, then I can send you some contact numbers. Do you have access to your emails? Yes, through my phone. Okay, I'll close your case file then. What's your email address? My case file? Along with the mist, it suddenly felt like there was a conspiracy in the air. Moreover, the damp had begun to soak through the seat of my jogging bottoms. Down and Out in Manchester and Salford, written and narrated by Brett Gregory. And coming up next on Arts Express. This is Bro on the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. And announcing the publication of my new book, The House That Buff Built. And today's episode is titled, Putting the Who Done It Back at the Center of the Dark Crime Novel. In the Anglo world, we simply take this distinction for granted and things generally get lumped together. But in the Francophone world, these two kinds of crime fiction are worlds apart. One branch of French crime fiction is called Le Policière a branch of which is the police procedural, and the other more popular branch, the police detective. The other line, though, is what the French call the roman noir, or dark crime novel, what we call hard-boiled fiction, which is also taken up in the film noir of the 40s, those stories that feature a compromised protagonist trying to somehow survive in a compromised world. The Policier is clearly descended from the Sherlock Holmes line and concentrates on the exposing of the criminal, in most cases a murderer, by the detective who, quirky as they may be, eventually fall in line and become the deductive scientific mind able to see behind the supposedly chaotic clues to determine who really committed the crime. The problem here is that the emphasis is almost entirely on the process of exposing the evildoer to the point that when they are exposed, and often along the way, there's little concentration on the social implications of their crime. This is a puzzle, not a cultural canvas. The Roman noir or hard-boiled novel from Chandler, Hammett, Ross MacDonald, and Woolrick on down involves the immersion of the lead figure in the social world that surrounds them, rather than them standing aloof from it and simply evaluating behavior. The lead figure often is not a detective, or if he or she is, may be highly compromised and even display criminal traits themselves. The French place a premium on this type of tale, concentrating on the atmospherics of the telling. French analysts of crime fiction also downplay the mystery element, arguing that in the Roman noir, the entire world is guilty, seedy, and corrupt, and the solving of the enigma, if there even is one, does little to change it. I've just finished my fourth novel in the Harry Palmer series titled The House That Buff Built. Each of these novels is a repudiation of this aspect of the French hard-boiled tradition. In my mind and in my books, it does matter who's guilty, and yes, the world, especially the world of the late 40s and 50s Los Angeles, is, as Orson Welles once described it, a bright, guilty place. But it's not a total morass. There are winners and losers in the novels, and there's a power structure in each that Harry and his partner Crystal eventually expose, and that governs the sector of the economy each book describes. That may be Hollywood at the time of the blacklist in the first book, Left of Eden, the post-war weapons industry in A Hello to Arms, the pharmaceutical industry, sometimes in league with the police, in the precinct with the golden arm, and finally, in the current book, the real estate industry and the media in the remaking and disenfranchising of major portions of the population in the house that Buff built. Harry and Crystal's dogged pursuit of the truth in each case leads to an exposing of the corruption that underlies and sets the table for the effusion of corruption which engulfs L.A. society in one of the darkest periods of its history. Indeed, the second trilogy of which House That Buff Built is the first installment is titled The Dark Ages. It examines besides the real estate industry whose pillaging led the city to its current housing crisis. The full enactment of the blacklist in the second volume in what Dalton Trumbo called, referring to the overall cowardice of the industry to resist this onslaught, the time of the toad. And in the final entry, the porn industry, at a moment when it was being taken out of the grubby and dirty hands of the mob and placed under corporate protection on its way to becoming a big moneymaker. The overall point, though, is that in the Roman noir, it does matter who done it. Sometimes in crime novels, series, and films, instead of carrying the crime to its logical conclusion, what we get is a last-minute sleight of hand that shifts responsibility from the actual guilty party to a more random suspect for the point of surprise and shock with the social import then displaced or thwarted. 
That's often the way people feel these days, where it seems that leadership in the West is so obviously separated from its constituents, and world, where the world seems to be nothing but a massive sea of corruption, as inequality continues to rise faster and faster. Nevertheless, there are agents behind these changes, and I feel it's important to identify who these agents are and what's the nature of their often corporate ability. As in the best noirs, uh, though a film, the most classic example of Chinatown comes to mind, the personal life of the culprit also bears the marks of their public malfeasance. And it is in my mind important to point out not only the similarities between public and personal crime, but also the gap between who they say they are and how their actions describe who they are in reality. Another film example of this combination of public and personal evil is the ending of Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, where the character finally betrays his last ounce of integrity and reveals himself incapable of redemption on both the social or economic and personal planes. I would argue then with the French interpretation and the way that perhaps the standard crime novel and film engage the genre, that while the world is a place of seedy and generalized corruption, that corruption has an origin, a central spoke from which evil radiates. And it is important in my mind to identify that origin and not give in to the idea that it is so vast and so widespread that it can, far from being contained or halted, not even be recognized. The House That Buff Built is the latest Harry Palmer, Crystal Eckert mystery, and part one of the Dark Ages and L.A. Trilogy, and it's available wherever fine books are sold. This is Bro on the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.